Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome and thanks for tuning in to the Two Fit Podcast, hosted by the Two Fit guys, Jake and Josh. Now, Two Fit, by definition, is actively pursuing a state of health and well being beyond perceived limitations. So, if you're looking to push the boundaries of performance mentally, physically, and everywhere in between, then you have come to the right place. On the Two Fit Podcast, we will be interviewing and having fireside chats with renowned experts from doctors and strength and conditioning coaches to athletes and entrepreneurs. Our goal is to extract tools and tricks of the trade that you can implement, whether you're a world-class athlete, weekend warrior, entrepreneur, or grinding out the eight to five, all in order to assist you on your journey to becoming Two Fit. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Two Fit Podcast. Now, today you're in for a real treat, a Two Fit treat, if you will. So, you know how in our intro we say we're going to be bringing to you doctors, strength and conditioning coaches, athletes, and sometimes just some bad A people? Well, that's what we got in store for you today. A couple of just awesome guys with some really great stories. Their names are Dustin and Aaron. Now, both of them spent the majority of their working careers as Marines. They both went on to join Marine Recon following that. And then they both worked private security kind of in their own way, post-military. And we'll get into all that. We'll get into their war stories, some of their physical training, some of the real gut checks that they both had to go through, uh, some bar brawls, and much, much more. We even touch on some business and how each of them kind of extrapolate their military experience and apply it to their business endeavors today. Then they both give us their two cents on how you, as a civilian, can better protect yourself in everyday life. Now, most of the time, I'd be telling you to grab a hot cup of coffee and a notepad, sit back and get ready to learn some stuff. Well, today, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to learn a lot about life. But honestly, this podcast pairs best with an ice cold brew and a couple of buddies. So enjoy. All right. Today, we're sitting down with Dustin and Aaron of West End Elixir. It's a new bar down here on Northgate. If you haven't come down and checked it out yet, you need to get down here. Um, just a really cool, classic kind of vintage feel to it. I say one of the better outdoor patio uh, atmospheres that you can find. Also, Dustin whips up his own alcoholic concoctions that'll uh, knock your socks off. There's some great stuff, and also Aaron's back there whipping up some artisan pizza. We we brought Dustin and Aaron on today not only because of their pizza and alcohol experience, but because they spent the majority of their their career in the Marines and Marine Recon. And uh, we're just excited to get this thing kicked off and just hear what these guys have to offer. So, Dustin and Aaron, thanks for having us here today. Yeah, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so, guys, let's uh, let's dive into a little bit of your background. Tell us, uh, so we both know you're kind of running the show here uh, at West End. Um, Dustin, you and I have known each other for a couple years now, I guess. And, Aaron, we've met four or five times. Um I know that we like to share the war stories fairly often, not from my experience, but from y'all's. Um, so what kind of gives you a little bit of your background uh, before you arrived here? I was in the uh, Marines for joining 04. I uh, went to Iraq twice and Afghanistan once. Got out and came here for school. Originally from New Orleans, so this is kind of my first time in Texas. I'll say first time. I've been living here for four years, but uh, didn't have any experience in Texas beforehand. Anything that drew you to Texas in particular? Uh, just Texas A&M, cool. really. And uh, Aaron over here is from Buffalo, New York. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. 
I yeah. Well, <laughs> at least you got out of there. Yeah, yeah. And I came here, so I I grew up here. Well, in, in the Dallas area, uh, for the most part. And uh, I actually spent four years in the army as a paratrooper. Then I got out for a couple years. I got bored. Decided I hadn't been abused enough. So then I joined the Marine Corps and uh, went the recon route. And then uh, I was floating around, and I, I've known Dustin for a few years. We met in Houston five years ago, I think, and uh, needed a, a new direction. And so he said, hey, come to College Station. I'm going to open up my own bar and come to work. So here I am. Does the the abusement still happen? Oh, oh the abusement is just nonstop. <laughs> You're still in the military with this guy, right? That's, yes. That's pretty yeah. much the situation. No, I don't go military on him. I just make fun of him from being from New York. Well, I, I had to. And then he does all those deep dish pizzas. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to know why you had me sign a non-disclosure agreement that I can't sue you for sexual harassment. That's just what I want to know. So did, did y'all go into the military out of high school? Uh, I did, yes. I did. Right. So what happened after, you, after your four years in the Army... What'd you do in that in that break in there? I bounced. Yeah. Yeah. I was I don't mean like literally like bounced like a bounce. I was uh worked a bunch of different bars and clubs, working the door, working the floor. And that and that's what I what I did. I I spent about Well, I spent about a year of that in Albuquerque, New Mexico, training at uh this was back in nineteen ninety nine, uh training at a place that's called Greg Jackson's, which is a, a big MMA gym out in out in Albuquerque. And so that was that was a great experience for me. And that's kind of what paved the way for me to go into the Marine Corps. So this this kind of for both of you, like you want to take it uh, separately. Uh, Aaron, since you're on that topic, what what made you both want to go into the military? Was that your upbringing? Did you have parents in the military? Uh, what kind of drew you to that from out of high school? Uh, I joined... My whole entire life, all I wanted to do was be a Navy SEAL, and that was all because of this uh, video game called Metal Gear Solid. All right, I'm just about to, you're about to get nerded, I'm about to get nerded out. I'm gonna and, uh, you. So when I went to the recruiter to try and see if I could be a Navy SEAL, they uh, they said my eyesight was too bad, so I didn't want to do anything else in the Navy. So I ended up joining the Marines instead, my infantry. Well, I was born a poor black child in a Southern plantation. <laughs> That's from Steve Martin. But uh, for me, uh, I grew up a, uh, a Buffalo Yankee in the Dallas area, you know, kind of surrounded by Texans. And uh, single mom raised myself and my little sister. And so I didn't really have a father figure growing up. So he would play Metal Gear. And we didn't have any of those bleepity bleeps. You know, video games. Back in the 70s. Yeah. But <laughs> our video games were called books. And, uh, you know, I, I got really into reading. And one of my favorite subjects was science fiction and fantasy. And so since I didn't have a father figured around to tell me that what I was reading was fairy tales and that, you know, real people like that didn't exist, real heroes, real warriors, oh, that's not real. You know, you're going to go and get a nine to five and just do that life. Well, I didn't have anybody to tell me that. So as I was growing up, I, I wanted 
I just wanted to be uh, a part of something bigger and greater than myself. And I wanted that sense of belonging because I didn't have that being a young Yankee in uh, a couple of Texas cow towns. So that was that was what led me. And I actually wanted to join the Marine Corps. That was I used to go to the Marine recruiting office when I was a young teenager and they'd let me come in and watch all their videos and sit down. And I still remember I, I went into one of the uh, Marine recruiting offices I used to go to and I was about 17 and they must have gotten a new gunny in the office. So I walked in, I said, Hey, you know, how you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm going to enlist in like a year, but I just figured I'd come and hang out. I guess it was a bad day for that gunny because he was like, well, if you're not old enough to enlist, just you're wasting my time. And so I went next door to the army recruiter and they said, no, come on in, watch all our videos. And so I ended up doing a, a tour in the army. But after I got out of the army, I was, I kind of, yeah, I, I love the army. I had a lot of great experiences there, but there's just nothing like being a Marine. I, as motarded as that sounds. I mean, that's, that's just the truth of it. I found what I was looking for in the core. So Aaron, it sounds like you went into it, not wanting to go special forces. I mean, right away, at least you didn't know that's what you wanted to do. Um, and Dustin, it sounds like you knew you wanted to do that, trying to join the seals right away. Um, so, I mean, what kind of makes you want to take it to that next level? Not just be an infantryman, not just a rifleman, you know? I mean, I love the infantry. Uh, uh, I think the Marine Corps infantry is probably still on the same par as like other special operations from other branches of the military, in my opinion, just from uh, training and just pure aggressiveness and, I mean, combat experience. Uh, Marine Corps infantry I probably has more combat experience than, I'd say, other special operations units just because... You know, they're constantly deploying, whereas special operations units have to train up and train up and train up. And then they go in there and they do very specific missions and everything else. Whereas for the infantry, you're just uh, totally immersed into your environment. You're in it every day. Even when you're on your patrol base, you're still, you know, subject to attacks and everything else. So, What drew you, to though, to the from being in the Marines and the infantry to trying out for recon? Uh, I was, uh, after I got off after duty, I went to this one unit called 123 in Houston and then they were cool guys, but I just, somebody was like, who wants to go to four three con in San Antonio? And I was just like, I'll do it. And that was that. For me, my, my story, it isn't really all that glamorous. I've, I've got a lot of achievements in my life. Uh, I've been hamstrung by myself a couple of times. I'm, I'm my, my own worst enemy. I actually enlisted in the army on a ranger contract. So what I did was I went to basic at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, AIT. I went to airborne school and then they had what's called RIP, which is the ranger indoctrination program. And that's about three weeks of sheer hell. If you pass that, which I did, you get sent to one of the three ranger battalions in the ranger regiment. So I actually went to 2nd Ranger Battalion up at Fort Lewis and spent uh, probably about eight months with them. Uh, back then, the culture of the Ranger Regiment is, from way up from the way I understand it, completely different now than it was then. Um, 
I went to jungle school, did, did some really cool, really great training. Some of the, the training I did in the Rangers, I carried with me, you know, through my time in, uh, Marine reconnaissance. But, uh, I, I was young and not as mature as I needed to be. And so I actually quit the second Ranger battalion. And then I went on to go to the first, the 501st Airborne up at Fort Richardson, Alaska. So after I got out of the Army, that was another thing that made me want to go into the Marine Corps was I felt like I'd let myself down. And so I'd already done the Army, didn't want to do that again. So I, I figured I'd join the Marines. And, and you know, I'm probably going to catch some flack for this, but, you know, Dustin's absolutely right. I would put I would put a company of Marines up against a company of Rangers any day of the week, especially when it comes to light infantry tactics and skills. So that, that jungle school, I've heard some things about Ranger, the, the Ranger kind of induct program and, and training and all that. Is that where they actually kind of drop you off basically like the swamps of Louisiana, Georgia, that area? And you basically got to survive for two weeks? No, no, that's, uh, I, I don't know what that would be. But uh, this was at Fort Sherman, Panama, and uh, it was end of 1994. So it's a three, three and a half week school. You know, it's it's a it's not like a, a big ass kicker. It's not a smoke check or anything. Um, oddly enough, we actually didn't get to finish it because in 1994, there were a bunch of Cuban refugee camps in Panama. Cubans that were trying to get to the United States. And when they would get picked up, they'd be sent to these refugee camps in Panama where they would await processing to see if they could get into the States. While we were in jungle school, um, a bunch of these Cuban refugee camps rioted. And initially they took some U.S. guards hostage and eventually released them. But in order to regain control of the camps, the, uh, the company of rangers that I was with we got pulled from ranger school, issued riot shields and axe handles. And early in the morning, we blew a hole in the, the fence and marched in a phalanx to kind of rest, to restore order to the, uh, to the refugee camps. And that was, that was just an absolutely surreal experience. But that was probably the last really cool thing I ever did in the army. For, since both of you've been through that experience to get into recon, what what is that tryout experience when you sign up? You know, um, when you talk about buds, when you talk about the seals, you talk about BRC, which is the basic reconnaissance course, and the reconnaissance mission. Seals and reconnaissance marines, their missions overlap, but the schoolhouses have two fundamentally different uh, goals. In in buds, you're taking a lot of guys that um, they're in the Navy, not necessarily the hardest boot camp experience you could have. Whereas when, by the time a person gets to BRC, they've likely already done, uh, they've already been to the Marine Corps boot camp. They've already been to school of infantry. Most likely they've already done a deployment with an infantry unit, but they've already been put through the grinder for a good eight months. So, BRC isn't really designed to necessarily weed anyone out, whereas BUDS is used as a smoke check to kind of thin the herd. So the BRC experience 
was one of the most intense learning experiences of my life. So it's uh, about 10 weeks long, set up into three phases, or at least it was when I was in there. But um, yeah, the schoolhouses, BRC is basically across the street from Bud's. We we see the those guys in their nice light boats, and uh, sometimes sometimes they'll uh, I almost use the H word. They don't haze. Sometimes they'll smoke us uh, in the surf neck with with the the seal cannon, the seal pups or whatever they're called. Um, in BRC, we had a a seal instructor. It's my understanding that there's a recon instructor at buds i'm not sure what was that what were those three phases if you don't mind breaking down for us sure um all right off my memory well when you get there first start off with your assessment so your our first phase was basically schoolhouse and i i don't remember the official term for it and i know that they've switched up the phases for instance first phase uh would be uh, recon skills. Second was uh, amphib, and then third was patrolling. It's my understanding now you do amphib second, patrolling last. I think we did it the opposite. No, hang on a second. He's old. I really am, and I get hit in the head for a hobby. So, um, thank God this isn't live. <laughs> so, Dustin, real quick, what? Um, why do you think it is that guys? There's like kind of this. It's not necessarily a pre-qualification to go to BUDS. You know, you can go straight into from boot camp into BUDS, and you don't have to serve time on a ship or something in the Navy first. I feel like it's probably a, commu- or a, say a communication or a recruiting tool because everyone wants to join the Navy and be a SEAL. And so if you can get a contract like that, that's just more reason for somebody to sign up. Because I know for a while there, back when I was trying to get into all that, uh, back in like 2003, there, I mean, there was like a, year and a half two year waiting list to go to buds so so i feel like that probably dropped their recruiting numbers and so the navy offered a, a buds contract knowing that 90 percent of the people that got the buds contract weren't going to make it you know yeah and we've had some conversations with seals before and i think josh has probably told you all this but uh just with all the media and stuff that's come out about them their numbers have increased for for buds right and, and people applying for it but the actual attrition rate has stayed the same. So kind of the makeup of the people, the makeup of the people, they're able to stay, the, you know, remain. But uh, so do you think that has anything to do with it? These people just coming in from outside, just trying to go straight to SEALs or in the Marines case? Well, I think the publicity of BUDS and everything else allows people to prepare for it a lot easier too. They know what kind of is expected of them at BUDS and, or as, before all of the media hype, maybe they just were kind of like, I don't want to be a SEAL. I heard it's cool. And then next thing you know, they're trashed in the waves. Getting, yeah. So why, why don't you think you hear as much about recon, guys? Yeah, and on that, because I know you mentioned us the last week when we spoke that the numbers are relatively the same or, or even smaller for recon versus SEALs. We, we didn't know that. Well, the Marine Corps in general is just smaller. I mean, we're the smallest branch in the military, so... Uh, if you're going percentage-wise, like percentage X amount of Marines or recon Marines, you know, even if it's 10% of SEALs or or 10% of the Navy are consistent of SEALs, 
and 10% of the Marine Corps consisted of recon. Obviously, that's not anywhere close to it, but, you know, proportionally, it's it'll be the same with the smaller numbers. Does that make sense? You know, I think one of the things that that contribute to that that kind of that low key that difference what you're saying and exposure between the seals and marine recon and i think that has a lot to do with the culture of the community in in the reconnaissance community our focus is not the mission so much as it is the man you know, one of the one of the lines in our creed is forever shall I strive to uphold the tremendous reputation of those who've gone before me. And, you know, quiet professionalism is is something that's just really instilled in each individual. So, you know, we don't really we don't try to write a lot of books about ourselves and we don't we're not we're not there. We don't go to recon to be in a limelight. We we go to reconnaissance because we don't want to be in the limelight. We we prefer let let anyone else that wants credit for any of that, let them have it, you know? It's it's supposed to be uh just for our community. And and I'm I'm sure there's going to be seals that are going to hate me now. I mean, that's not a first, but you know, that's that's just the primary difference I see in in the community. It almost seems like the seals have and I remember, I'm a complete outsider, you know, when it comes to seals. I, I only know two of them personally. So, it, but it's always seemed to me like, from the outside looking in, like a fo- lot of the focus is on the mission, which it has to be. But I, I mean, this is why I don't do radio shows on my own is because I'm, I need a script. But, uh, Maybe just explain for people what exactly recon is and what it does. Okay, I think I can. I can try that. Um, I almost want to Wikipedia it, but primarily the the function of we'll put that in the show notes. Wikipedia <laughs> Marine <laughs> Recon. Yes. Uh, the the primary function of Marine reconnaissance is deep reconnaissance and battle. What's called battlefield shaping. In other words, small. Reconnaissance teams out behind the lines, gathering all the battlefield intelligence for the battle commander, division, you know, battalion, depending on what kind of a mission it is. Gathering all that information and sending it back. Troop movements, details of, of troop configuration, uh, everything from structures and obstacles, slopes, uh, Slopes being the slope of a hill because the degree of a slope has a tremendous impact on, you know, tactical advantage. So our primary mission has always been deep reconnaissance. Our secondary mission is direct action. How large or how small are the teams that go out? You know, that's that's a fantastic question. Depends on the mission. It depends completely on the mission. I mean, uh, I was trained to operate in four and five man teams. Um, but I, I was what's called greenside, which is, I was in first reconnaissance battalion. We were training for that traditional reconnaissance role of a few guys going into the bush and getting eyes on an objective. If you look at uh force, force reconnaissance, 
their one of their primary missions are what's called direct action. So they can operate in an entire platoon size. So they may or may not operate as a four man team, but they'll do large, larger scale raids on select objectives. So Dustin, on your like most recent experience with your deployments, what was kind of a day in life comparison from Marine infantry going out knocking down doors every day to Marine recon? I never deployed as recon. I was always infantry. So it was always patrolling, raids, uh, anything from like when we were in Fallujah back in 2004 and 2005, after the main battle of Fallujah was done, it was doing a census of all the citizens that came back, like writing down their names, writing down where they lived to clearing out buildings. So was, was your team one of those first boots on the ground into Fallujah to take over that city? People don't realize Fallujah was actually battled uh, twice. There was the initial push, but then they just rolled through, did it, and they left. They didn't have anybody stay behind, and then everyone just flooded back in. And then when they cleared it out again, that's when uh, my battalion was involved with. So, How many men would you say were in the Marines on going through Fallujah? Oh, there was three battalions, so 3,000. And that's and that's a whole that is that is a whole level of skill to operate in a unit like Dustin's that is shoulder to shoulder with three thousand people, all having to to move as kind of one living organism in order to complete the mission. That's that's beyond my even level of being able to fathom. The, the tactical. There's also tanks involved. There was tracks. There was, uh, you know, helicopters. And there's so there's a, a lot of coordination when it comes to a massive operation like that. And then uh, after that, we went to in 2007. I was in Karma and Zidon, and it was a lot less of a volatile environment. But it was a a lot of uh, IEDs and a lot of snipers. Uh, a lot of snipers. It was like sniper infested over there. So the tactics had to change. It wasn't everybody just rushing in. And a lot of it was running from deflate to deflate and then throwing smoke grenades. You know, you walk around with like a Christmas tree full of smoke grenades so that you can move without getting shot. So I've heard some, some military guys say they actually prefer being deployed over being stateside because you're actually getting to do what you've been trained for. Um, do you all agree with that? And, and Dustin, do you feel like you might have like, did you want to deploy as a recon? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, that's why I went over there. But uh, by the time I got into it, the wars were dying down and everything else as well. And people weren't deploying as much. But, I mean, before I went to fourth, I was, uh, I mean, went to Iraq twice and Afghanistan once. So I kind of got my fair share. Saw your fair share, yeah. <laughs> What, what were the main, uh, did you see any different like tactics either used by your battalion or the enemy between Iraq and Afghanistan? Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, Iraq was not as kinetic as uh, Afghanistan was. Afghanistan was, when we were there in 2008, we were the first Marine infantry battalion in that province since 2002. So there was nobody, they were... They basically chased everyone from up north down south, and then they just left it unchecked. 
And so it was literally a horn's nest, like wild, wild west. There was nobody there but us. And so we were spread out so thin. They, like one battalion was spread out over the entire province. And so we were in platoon size patrol bases and everything else. And medevacs were six hours away. You know, if you get shot, you just better live because there's nobody coming. Uh, a lot of times, you know, you go black on ammo, water, food, and everything else. And so you just, you just better live, you know. But uh, that's encouraging. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, now nowadays, like, uh, what do we have to complain about? You know, nowadays, uh, from the people that deployed after us, because when we went to Afghanistan, the focus was still on Iraq. Nobody ever talked about Afghanistan. Now Afghanistan is all you hear about. Well, and, well, now that ISIS is here, you hear about Iraq again. But so nobody gave us any attention. They just thought we were just going to be there to just be there. I guess I don't know. Some of the generals and stuff like that were, I forgot his name, but he gave a speech and he was saying how he regretted putting us into that situation um, with the resources that we had. And basically, our deployment paved the way for all the tactics and everything else of two serve uh, of Afghanistan um, for all the battalions going in afterwards. Now there's like air bases, there's like pizza huts and stuff. I mean, they didn't have any of that when I was there. The, the funny thing is we went to this area called Delaram, which Delaram was a fob on by this bridge. And it was just there to hold this bridge. And it was maybe the size of this building right here. And now it's a huge air base. And there's like all these, you know, food places like uh, donut shops and stuff like that on this base. And people talk about how nice it is. And I was like, well, I remember digging a hole to go to sleep there. So... So what what was the the morale of the guys like at that point? How do you how do you keep those spirits up when you're running out of food and ammo? I mean, it's really just like a, it's kind of like a bonding experience. I've never I'll never ever ever in my entire life have friends like I had there. And I mean, we fought I mean, just like your brothers. You know, you fight with your brother whenever shit gets stressful, but at the same time, you still love your brother. So what was a moment during any deployment that you can recall? where the time kind of stood still you slowed down and paused and it was like this thought of i better do something right now or else well see a lot of times you go into like this autopilot mode like you don't really realize what's going on you're just your instincts kick in and your body just takes over you're not really thinking about it afterwards you're like whoa but while it's happening uh, I don't know. It's it's a, like a surreal feeling. I think for me, uh, that happened in a bar in Thailand, and I saw this girl, and I was, I better do something right now. <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. Um, you know, it, it's like what Dustin said. I didn't. <laughs> hey, it was only 150 baht. That's like 15 dollars US. Yeah, you um, might get a little something extra, though. Wasn't so little. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, you know what Dustin said. That's that's kind of the reason why we train so hard is so that we don't have moments like that. Because if you're having a moment where you're kind of sitting there, even for a split second, thinking, I better do something... You already messed up. Yeah. Something something else has already that's changed. 
whatever you're focusing on trying to decide what to do, that has probably already changed and the whole situation changed. So it's kind of that's that's you train the way you fight, you fight the way you train. That's why, you know, Dustin was saying that his experience in Iraq was completely different than Afghanistan. And they dropped his guys off basically on a, on a hilltop and said, OK, well, you guys figure out how we're fighting this thing. And, and that's what they did, because that's just what they do. They improvise, adapt and overcome. Also, a lot of people ask about being scared um, in like combat situations, and I've never I'm not saying I'm just, like some badass, but I've never been scared in any kind of combat situation because uh, I'm thinking too much. If that makes sense, like I'm assessing things, especially being in a leadership role, you're seeing where the fire is coming from, where you can go, if you get shot, you know, or if someone gets shot, where you, can you medevac them from? Uh, what's your next move? Stuff like that. So it's. Like I said, it's one of those kind of you, you're thinking, but you're not thinking. I don't know. You're not really self-assessing the danger that you're in. But afterwards, you know, that's when you get all shaky when it's all said and done. You know, and when we talk about fear, that's that's something that that has a kind of a different concept to everyone. It's to to say if I if I said, you know, bullets were flying and. I wasn't afraid. That means something different than my, well, let me see what I'm trying to say. My biggest fear, and I, I can almost guarantee you Dustin's going to agree with me. My biggest fear is letting my guys down. That's the only thing I'm afraid of. And that's kind of what kind of propels you. It, that whole fear of death, the whole, combative situation that that kind of compresses itself in the center of your being and you you kind of wrap that into a little ball and you stuff it deep down inside of you and it just is you know and besides if you know for me I just kind of made up my mind that I was already dead. So if I'm already dead, I don't have to worry about it. And, you know, that's that's why, you know, some people will say, hey, if you've never had to write death letters and, and keep them stashed in, you know, in a box for your team so that if somebody doesn't come home, in case you don't come home, I mean, you, you sit there and write that last letter to your wife or, you know, your boyfriend. And, uh, you know, that's, that is, that's an experience of death because you have to kind of confront your own mortality before you ever even step foot on, on any kind of operation. So say you have a, Say, you know, an army private, he's going on his first deployment and he's scared to death, right? How do you teach him to do that? Or can you? Do you think it's just in your makeup? We're dealing with an army private first off, so. Bad example. <laughs> I feel like it's a, uh, it's just in your makeup, but I feel like joining the Marines, it's kind of like, 
and I'm not talking down on any other service, but people join the Marines knowing that, especially if you join the Marine Infantry or Recon or anything like that, you you join, you know what you're getting yourself into. You know you're about to go fight, especially if you join during wartime. So I feel like it attracts certain people who are almost wanting to be in those kind of situations. I know I did. You know, I didn't want to push papers somewhere or anything like that. Do you think some people's lack of fear could come from lack of training or lack of preparedness, maybe? Lack of fear? come from lack of training no a fear could come from lack of preparedness or training absolutely i mean that's that's the whole premise behind all the training it's it's one of the reasons why you know schools like basic reconnaissance course are so incredibly hard because they basically try to make the school so hard and such an ass kicker that by the time you actually get into combat you're like this ain't, this ain't patrol phase. I'm doing just fine. You know, it's, it won't be the first time you've been up for four straight days with and, no food. And I feel like that goes for anything. Like if you just hammer into someone what you need to do in certain situations and everything else so hard that eventually when it comes down to it and they're tired and they don't have the right state of mind to think they're just going to, like I said, go into that autopilot mode and, uh, just, their instincts are going to take over after that point. Yeah, I don't think civilians like us even realize how much training, you know, the military actually goes through. I remember talking with a, a Vietnam vet before, and he's in his 60s now, and he said he could still field strip his M16 if I hung him upside down blindfolded and he had mittens on because he'd just done it, you know, 3,000, 6,000 times, whatever it is. So, I mean, do you all have any skills like that that you could still do? Blindfolded upside down. I mean, I still know my tactics in case, you know, the zombie apocalypse ever happens, but... We're going to test both of you on that after the show, too, so... Uh, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just that whole... It, it literally changes your DNA, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to use that like, you know, some basic chick. I mean, literally, it, it fundamentally changes who you are at a cellular level. And I'm just talking about the training itself, you know, and that's, that's just one of the main things that that whole stress and fear inoculation, you know, once you've confronted fear so many times or confronted stress so many times, then your body and your mind build up a a natural ability to, to combat those things. So how do you um, how do you go about decompressing when you even when you're overseas or on a mission um, for months and and you're you come back from two days three days five hours whatever it is do you, is there is there any sort of way that you go about decompressing? Well, we never went to like a like a safe haven per se. So we would get off of a you know a patrol or whatever, and you. would be at a fob like i said that's tiny that's getting rocketed on the regular getting mortared and getting shot at describe what the fob is fob is just literally four walls of dirt where you're sleeping that night forward operating base oh yeah sorry it's an acronym for forward operating base apologize i always assume people know my acronyms um so yeah i mean it doesn't you're, you're never really safe so it's kind of hard to decompress but i mean i don't know it's uh 
it's not like you're just constantly on guard like in the movies, which is kind of a bad thing to say because, you know, sometimes you do get complacent, especially if something doesn't happen for a few days. And the next thing you know, like a bullet whipping by you again and like, okay, it's time to go back on. But even like back home after being on deployment, you know, I know it's not like freak out like or have any kind of major episode or anything like that. But, you know, I would, it, it was weird. Like I'd be in a, just sitting there and I would think, well, if somebody walks in the store right now shooting, what am I going to do? And I'd plan out things like that. Like it never, never I like enacted, but I'd sit there and think like, okay, well, if this guy's going to pull out a gun right now, what am I going to do? And here's the exits and. And here's what I could use for a weapon. You know, I look at things like if you've got a watch in your left wrist, that means you're probably right-handed. So if you swing at me, I know where it's going to come from, majority-wise, you know. Or um, see if someone's got a pocket knife in their pocket. Just random things like that. And sometimes I still do that. I still assess situations, whereas I feel like normal humans don't do that. Uh, for... For me, I hypervigilance is just kind of my way of life. You know, I, I don't stand in doorways. I'm always looking for the exits, seeing who's coming and who's going. The hands will kill you, so I'm always trying to be aware of what's in people's hands, what they're holding, what they're doing with them. But as far as decompressing, you know, self-love. That's, that's the easiest way to decompress. I don't think I can say masturbation on the show. Can I say <laughs> masturbation on the show? You just did like, twice. <laughs> I said masturbation twice? Mine was listening to music and so that's in comic books. I'm a nerd. Mine was reading books and uh, MMA. We had a, a, a good crew of guys to train with when I was deployed. So, And, and that's, that's kind of been my go-to for, for stress is being involved in mixed martial arts. Know, most of my adult life it sounds like you guys and most of the special forces guys out there are kind of just masters of being able to, to compartmentalize things even like during training and everything if you got to run eight miles later but you're doing log pt right now all you're doing is worried about log pt you're not worried about what you have to do later right or if you're if bullets are going by you right now you're not worried about you know, whatever's going on back at the FOB or whatever else. You're just, I'm in this right now. i got to get through this now, and then we'll worry about what's, what comes next. Well, I mean, if you're in a firefight and you're thinking about what's going back on the FOB, yeah. I don't think it has anything to do with special forces. <laughs> I, I think you're just fucked at that point. Excuse my French. Was that French? That was French. Oh. Lay fucked. Lay fucked. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to figure out how to answer that. Would you compartmentalize not only in action, but your personal life, your military life? You'd have to talk friends. to my ex-girlfriend about that one. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's just kind of the, um, I don't know, that's just kind of what happens. You become a compartmentalized individual, unless you're me, and all your compartments have cracks in the seams. And What are two things that, from all of your military experience you would recommend for discipline or building habits structure um that's kind of how we run the bar here i mean aaron's my kitchen manager he's a marine i own the bar i'm a marine my bar manager sean he's a marine we've got another marine named dan that works for us he's a another cook 
I got about to hire another Marine named Michael. He's going to be a bartender. So that makes five Marines that work here. So we all know the chain of command. Like, uh, I fully trust Aaron to take care of his stuff. All he does is tell me what he's doing, and I'm just yay or nay, you know. And I don't have to worry about him or the kitchen. And with the bar, when Sean, I don't have to worry about the bar. I can just worry about, you know, paperwork basically now. Uh, so, um, whereas I know a lot of other bar owners and general managers are like losing their mind because they have to do every little detail of everything because, you know, they just can't trust who they have working for them. So that's one thing I brought from civilian life. And that's why I hire almost, I would say almost exclusively vets. I mean, so I've got five Marines, two Army and one Navy that work for me. So Advice? Me? I'm not good at advice. Uh, for someone who was going in, is that, is that your question? Your own takeaways. I've learned a lot of hard lessons <laughs> over, especially over the last few years. Um, but I, I guess if there's two things, have integrity, whether you want it or not, have it, you know, uh, be true to yourself, be true to truth. And then I guess behind that, be the kind of person that you want in your life. And that's not very military specific, but if, you know, you think about the kind of people that you want in your life, you know, you want good, honorable, dedicated people as your friends, you've got to, you've got to be that too. And so those, those are kind of, those are my two tidbits. That's, that's some great advice. And I don't think people know that we have a, a celebrity in our midst, too. Apparently, there was a um, a character that plays you on Generation Kill. Is that correct, Aaron? Oh, God, no. I am not in any way, shape, or form on Generation Kill. Not you yourself. No, I, I, I didn't. My company, or my company, huh? Bravo Company, uh, second and third platoons, those were the guys on Generation Kill. I was with first platoon. I was with the 15th Mew on the Tarawa. So I was, thank God, I was nowhere near any Rolling Stone reporters or anything because I would have made a total ass of myself, even worse than I'm doing right now. It would have been just ugly. One of his best friends is Fruity Rudy. One of my besties. Could you just give a quick background for everybody what Generation Kill is and the Rolling Stone report? Oh, yeah, sure. I guess I can talk about that. Um, So... When we were getting ready to invade Iraq, uh, Evan Wright, we, the the military was doing this big thing with all these embedded reporters. They wanted all these media representatives to go out with the the units that we're going to deploy. Well, Evan Wright, report, reporter from Rolling Stone, got 1st Reconnaissance Battalion. And uh, legend has it, I haven't read the book or, or seen the, the miniseries in a while, but uh, legend has it that he was going to stay in the, the talk, the tactical operations center with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ferrando and all those guys. And he wanted to be out with the teams. So he traded his sat phone 
to uh, the battalion commander to put him on a team. So, you know, he got to uh, live with uh, two platoons of reconnaissance marines for most of the invasion. When when he was done being embedded with First Recon, he wrote a series of articles for Rolling Stone. And I and I, I remember the articles when they came out. They created a huge uproar uh, in, in the reconnaissance community because, you know, he he really highlighted some of the conflicts that the enlisted and the officers were having because we were a peacetime Marine Corps finally going to war. Um, so after, after writing the series of articles, he wrote a book called Generation Kill. And then HBO picked it up and made it a miniseries. And it's actually a, a really good miniseries. And, uh, one of the guys in Bravo Company, uh, Rudy Reyes, there's only one. There can only be one. And, uh, you can't find an actor that looks anything like Rudy Reyes. So, uh, he played himself. And, uh, and he's doing, he's been, Consistently working in film. He just got cast for uh, a new movie called John Comes Home. And uh, he's he's going to be out working on filming with that. So He and uh, Rudy Reyes have been in battle in other ways. <laughs> Do you want to explain that one? Oh. I don't know. Is the statute of limitations? What's the statute of limitations for uh, Rudy and I? Uh, let's see. Uh, I got to I got to think tactically here. Uh, Rudy and I used to train together back in Bravo Company. Uh, we were the two martial arts guys. He, he was really into Kung Fu, a lot of Eastern philosophy, and really just a, an incredibly disciplined, centered human. And I was uh, into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and boxing, and I'm really not that centered of a human. So we would get together and train. Well... Probably about uh, 2008, nine, I started to I started to have a lot of issues with my brain brain issues. That long story takes us to uh, Ir- Irving, Texas, uh, in December, uh, attending a brain therapy treatment. Uh, center and it just so happens that Rudy and I both end up there at the same time together and we're staying at this beautiful four star hotel and uh, just just a really nice place and so every night after therapy you know uh, Rudy and I are down in the bar having a few drinks eating dinner laughing you know reminiscing we get to know all the bartenders everybody knows us not on purpose it's just how we go how we go? How we go? Good luck finding that one and editing it out. <laughs> this is how we do it. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I don't know how exactly to, to tell the story without sound like I'm trying to make myself sound cool because I'm definitely not. So cool. Long story short, there was a group of corporate individuals that were having a party at the uh, at the at the hotel bar, and I guess they didn't like us. 
Um, anyway, Rudy and I step outside and, uh, there were two good, trying to think of how to do this. Huh? Or last thing I want are like criminal charges. All right. So basically here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to, I'm going to do a Richard Marcinko on this. If you don't know who Richard Marcinko is, he was like the first famous seal. Um, so none of this actually, what I'm about to tell you never happened. That's it. Just never happened. This is a story that I'm working on. It's all fiction. So Rudy, Rudy and I are at the bar and uh, a couple of his buddies from Austin come up and we're hanging out. One of them is a, uh, was a uh, captain in the army and had just gotten out like 48 hours before. We're having a great time. This private party comes in. They're all in tuxes and, you know, it's kind of corporate thing. And, you know, Rudy and I, we don't necessarily like look like everyone else. He, he's got a very uh, flamboyant isn't the word because it's not flamboyant. I'm, I'm, my my words are failing. Eccentric. Yeah. And and I. I generally like to wear bow ties and bowlers. So we both look rather unique and, you know, we laugh loud. Uh, we have a good time. But the atmosphere in the bar kind of just starts getting real douchey, basically. So Rudy and I go outside. We're going to hang out for a minute. Let just kind of let things cool. And, and I remember at this point, nothing has been said between our little group and this big group. We go out front, and uh, we're out there maybe three minutes, and all of a sudden, the bartender opens up the front door and goes, Rudy, your boys are getting their asses kicked. So, Rudy just bolts right on in there, and I'm coming, coming uh, in behind him. And what had happened is, uh, this corporate party had started started trouble, and the bartenders, remember, fiction, the bar- bartenders had had seen it happen, had seen these guys come over and start trouble. And as it happens, they hit one of our friends with a wine bottle yeah, in the uh, side of the head and actually broke part of his orbital socket. Nothing was happening when we got in there. It was all over with. Well, Rudy doesn't know who's, who's good. So Rudy goes running in and in the the main lobby of this five-star hotel, the... Oh, it was four-star just a minute ago. Was it? <laughs> it was. Five, it was. four, five? is getting better. Nice four and a half. Yeah. Yeah. It has a bar. <laughs> Thanks. It has a bar. Uh, they All these people are coming out of the bar. Rudy doesn't know what's going on. And he's going, is everybody okay? Is everybody okay? Well, the party that kind of we'd been feeling the vibe from, all these guys start start grabbing Rudy. Like, hey, you know, trying to like get in his face and and rudy is just he's the coolest guy he's just like brothers brothers i don't want to fight anybody i'm not i'm not here to fight i'm not here to do anything like that and uh you know these guys are getting in rudy's face and people are starting to put hands on him and rudy is you know finally rudy's actually kind of surrounded by a group and i'm I'm hanging out at the side because i'm not as subtle as rudy is and so when a couple guys start to grab him, Rudy goes, guys, I don't want to fight. And all I can see are these guys grabbing Rudy. And every once in a while over the, the group, I'll see a pair of wingtips go flying. Because he's he's just doing little kung fu moves. And 
just guys, guys throwing, guys will grab him. He's tossing them off like, like they're nothing. And, and he's guys, I don't, I don't want to hurt you. And that's, and that's when things kind of like, Hey, you know, stop this. And at, at that point, Rudy kind of like, I think he flipped the guy and then tripped over him. It, and he, he went to the ground. So he had a bunch of guys on top of him. And even from under the pile, I can hear Rudy saying, brothers, <laughs> I don't want to hurt you. And they're kind of laughing. And, and I watch one guy come around on the outside of the, of the group. And I watch him look at Rudy's head. Rudy's laying on the ground trying to wrestle these guys off him. And he raises his foot to do a foot stamp, foot stomp. And, uh, so I hit him with a right and he went to sleep and then just all hell broke loose. And there's Rudy and I back to back, just kind of in a slug fest. And I, I, look, I imagine like an eighties action film right it now. Was, it <laughs> is. It is. And I, I swear. It's kind of like, Kenny uh, Loggins playing in the background. <laughs> we're, we were definitely in a zone of danger, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of like, uh, you know, Jack Burton in, uh, Big Trouble in Little China. It was just, it was absolutely, it was so surreal that I remember Rudy and I being back to back and talking to each other while it's going on because we never deployed together. And I'm like, Rudy, I've always wanted to share the field of battle with you. And he's like, me too, brother. Me too. And, and so that this thing is going on and it's all happening really fast. I look over and of course, if you've never seen, Rudy Reyes, uh, we used to call him flawless for flawless Rudy Reyes. And I'll, and I'll tell you the joke right now. The joke is, is that and it's really more of a truth. 99% of men admit to having gay thoughts about Rudy Reyes. It doesn't make you homosexual. It just makes you human because the man is beautiful. So we're in the middle of this scrap fest and of course, the whole time Rudy's telling guys, guys, we're, we're not here to fight. We're here for therapy. And I look over and Rudy's got his shirt off, you know, just, just with his I was just picturing this abs. with his shirt off anyway. Yeah. I don't know yeah, why. It, well, that's just his natural state. And <laughs> so in the fray, I look over and I'm like, he took his shirt off in the fight. I'm like, so not to, one to be outdone. I ripped my shirt off, realizing instantly that that was the biggest mistake. Is that I'm an in shape guy, but when I look over at Rudy Reyes and I look back at myself, I realized put a shirt back on. I, I, I had no time, <laughs> but I, I just looked at him and looked at myself and was like, I, I got to get back in the gym. And then at that moment, who do you think everybody's going to attack? Do you really think they're going to attack? You know, this, this Rudy Reyes, you know, Mexican Adonis over here or the short, fat, hairy Irishman over here. You're right. It was going to be me. So Mexican and Irish teaming up. Yes. Team, team Green Bean. Yes. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was like the San Patricius Battalion in the uh, Mexican American War, I think. So anyway, at the end of the day, I don't think anybody else got hurt. All I remember is that someone, we were back to back behind the Christmas tree because there were just so many of them. And so we're back to back and they have to come around the Christmas tree and we're just standing there kind of trying to fend off the, the horde of penguins. And, uh, 
someone, it was like we were in a high school kegger. We're in a four-star hotel, and someone goes, cops, cops. And uh, all these penguins start running like 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 someone's just killed their party. So they all run, and we're we're like, oh, my God, what am I, what are we going to do? And that's when the bar door opens, and it's the bar manager there. He's like, Rudy, Aaron, come on. We go into the bar and they lock the deadbolt, send us up the service elevator and tell us not to come back down until it's all over with. That was a very good fictional story. Yes, it was one, 100% fiction. What we did mention in the story is we killed five guys. <laughs> <laughs> While Aaron's out uh, fighting in bars after his, his military service, what, what were you doing, Dustin? I was working at Walmart doing loss prevention. Yeah, I got fired from Walmart twice, actually. I got fired, rehired, and then fired again. Uh, first time I got fired, this guy pulled out a box cutter on me, so I took him down, and I elbowed him until his teeth came out. And then he ended up on YouTube somehow. What? I so haven't seen that. How, did, type, how Type in College Station Walmart Thief. Bam. Are we even bros, dude? I've never <laughs> even seen that. Brother, show me <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, they, uh, they fired me, and... Uh, couple months later they call me back like hey you know if you want your job back we'll give it to you and i was like okay so they fired you for doing your job well they fired me because the policy is if they have a weapon you're supposed to immediately disengage but by then he was already like slashing at me so and then uh a few months later a guy pulled a gun on me so i killed him and then i didn't really bother reapplying after that so can you elaborate on that story for Uh, the listeners stop shoplifter i didn't realize this guy was like fresh out the pen he did like a 10 or 12 year stint. So, but your detail inside Walmart, you kind of dress as civilian, right? Yeah, no, that's actually, you're supposed to dress quote unquote undercover, like in civilian clothes. And um, so I caught this guy stealing. Uh, you can't stop until he gets out the door. So he gets out the door, and he's in a ton of merchandise. So I got the front of a basket, and I was like, hey, man, I need you to come talk to me about the stuff you took. And he takes off running, so I tackle him. When I tackle him, I'm on top of him. And he goes, I thought he was punching me, so I blocked it. When I blocked it, I heard the shot. And I realized that he wasn't trying to punch me. He was trying to put the gun to my head. And so the gun goes off behind my head. I grab the gun, bring it up front. The gun goes off again. But the second time the gun goes off, my hand is over the ejection ports. The gun jams. So I rip the gun out of his hand, step back, clear the jam real fast, and point at him. Then I guess he thought I was bluffing or something because he pulls out a knife. I was like, dude, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you if you come at me with that knife. And then he came at me with a knife, so I killed him. And so what what merchandise was he trying to get out of there that was worth his life? Uh, well, I wasn't gonna kill him for stealing. Well, no, no, I know okay. that's not on you, but I mean, he he did that to himself. Is what uh, I'm saying. He was stealing a bunch of stuff. I mean, it, they did what's called bagging, where he goes and grabs all a bunch of stuff and then takes shopping bags and then puts them all in the bags, and so that way when he walks out, it looks like he bought it all. That's pretty intense. I'm so uncomfortable with both of these stories. Mine was made public. Yours is about to be public. So, how how public was that story when it happened? Uh, well, nothing ever happens in this town, so it was like all over the place. And Aaron, you actually did some contract work outside the military. Oh, that's something I can actually talk about. Oh, that's great. I think a lot of people maybe are misunderstood or don't really understand what contract military looks like. Well, I mean, it. Do you, do you approach them? Do they approach you? What's kind of the duties and, and the objectives versus uh, conventional military? 
Well, to begin with, the the number one difference is that uh, private military contractors are not allowed to take part in any type of offensive operation. They have to be uh, defensive in nature. Uh, as far as anything else beyond that, it is 100% situationally dependent on the company you're working for, the the contract the company has, the the area of operations, the theater that you're in. I mean, there's there's no there's no cookie cutter for it. You know, my experience my experience contracting uh, is going to be completely different than someone else. I've got friends that do other government governmental agency contracting where, you know, they're being subcontracted to, you know, guard embassy personnel, close protection details, stuff like that. And, you know, that kind of goes with the other question, like, do you call them? Do they call you? If it's what I would say, you know, a real high level gig uh, there, it's it's going to be you're going to get a phone call. Hey, you know, from your buddy who's also on that contract going, hey, I need some more guys. You want to come work with me um, at my level? I, I applied to different companies. I got lucky and got hired on some contracts. And, and that was that was a good time. I started initially working for the infamous Blackwater uh, after her, Hurricane Katrina. My next gig, I got picked up by a company called Triple Canopy. Got sent to an, um, the most amazing school as far as uh, it was called a high-risk high PSD course. And that was a three-week three course full-time on how to do executive protection and dignitary protection in a high-threat environment. And it was shooting and learning how to do what's called walk the diamond and learning how to do site assessments and advance work and driving. And that was really amazing. My my last, probably the only company I really uh, identify with, I got hired by a company called Cochise Consultancy. And what they were working on is a Department of Defense unexploded munitions project in southern Iraq. And so I was a part of a team of security guys that protected a team of civilian explosives guys. And we basically built a fort out in uh, southern Iraq and spent the time guarding them while they picked up all of the unexploded bombs left over from Saddam's arsenal and then destroyed them. So I, I wasn't involved in anything all that glamorous. It was, it was good work and sometimes it was dangerous. Sometimes it was really, really boring. But the whole purpose of having private military contractors is to free up uh, American troops so that we can do the things that they don't necessarily we don't have to have american troops on the ground what would you recommend to civilians that they could do to protect themselves i, I mean i would recommend krav maga and i can attest to it uh 
firsthand because that's what I used with that whole Walmart thing. Could you explain what that is? Uh, so there's two different types of Krav Maga, actually. There's Krav Maga and there's Commando Krav Maga. Commando Krav Maga is what they teach the Israeli forces. Um, it's almost exclusively how to deal with somebody with a weapon when you don't. You get a lot of uh, people and a lot of like martial arts programs and stuff like that that seems cool and stuff like that. But when you actually try to apply it uh, practically, it's just not feasible. Well, I can once again attest to Commander Krav Maga being just awesome. And is that is that the one spelled? Is it K R A V? K R A V M A G A. Two words. And how how long do you think it would take to do some training or classes like that to to feel at least somewhat equipped? Well, there's no belt system. There's level systems. But they, uh, it's, it's nice because they, uh, teach you the essentials right off the bat. It's not like, here's how you punch, and then you do that for two months, and then they teach you about a knife or a gun. They teach you the guns and knives first, and then they start teaching you the other stuff. And it's one, it's 100% dirty fighting. It's kicking in the nuts, it's gouging out eyes, it's biting jugulars. I mean, it's, it is the hands down the most dirty fighting ever, but it's, it's practical. If you're in a life or death situation, it's definitely what, I would use, I mean, or what I have used, and just carry a weapon. You know, when people ask me, well, what can I do to, to be more safe? Well, first, safety isn't a place, and safety isn't a weapon. Safety is a mindset. It's, it's a lifestyle choice. You have to have the, – the first way to really increase your personal safety is to have a lifestyle of vigilance. Being, being aware of your surroundings and your place in them. It's, it's amazing to me how many people will go out and get a concealed handgun license and never go to the range or ever shoot. So they have the gun, but you know, that's, that's a response. They, a, a, a gun doesn't make you either more safe or less safe. It is simply a response to a perceived or real threat. What really makes us safe is, like I said, having that, that mindset of vigilance, a, a vigilant lifestyle. The second thing that people can do to, to protect themselves when it, when it comes down to that is, and here's, here's where I'm going to go off on, on one of my little tangents. I love the police. Not really, but, uh, and something you guys probably don't know about me is I was a police officer in Albuquerque, New Mexico when I got out of the Marine Corps before I went and started contracting. Um, but the fact of the matter is the police, especially according to the Supreme Court, are not obligated to protect us. They don't have a duty to protect anyone. And it's not their responsibility. It is the responsibility of every grown adult to protect themselves and the other people around them. So having a mindset of vigilance, getting a concealed carry permit, uh, being trained in the use of your firearm, practicing consistently, and then beyond that, uh, you know, learning a, a martial art that I would say that you enjoy. My personal belief is that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and uh, uh, wrestling 
are probably are, are my my personal two favorites. But uh, that's my you know Krav Maga is great works. Uh, I've seen a lot of you know I've, I've seen Rudy Reyes flip people all over the all over a ballroom with uh, kung fu. So find something you like. But the the biggest thing I I just can't uh, I can't repeat it enough. The biggest thing is by practicing a lifestyle of vigilance and being being aware and alert. What are some books or documentaries that you would recommend that either, well, obviously that you've read or watched, but that and it doesn't necessarily have to be military. Um, maybe something that that you feel accurately depicts military life or marine life and also just something uh general life books i mean restrepo is a good one as far as life i mean there's not a whole lot of actual documentaries um that depict that kind of stuff so yeah i'll throw that one out there just out of bait like being limited to those types of documentaries um, I'm a big conspiracy theorist, so any kind of conspiracy theory documentary, zeitgeist. Well, the first book I could think of would be uh, The Gift of Fear by author Gavin DeBecker. And it, it, that was kind of the, that was the first book I ever read about vigilance and about awareness and, and learning how to how to listen to your own intuition. So that relates earlier to what we were talking about but that that book is and then uh, he's got a follow-up to that book called protecting the gift and it's basically for parents and it, it it talks about how to not just be more aware in regards to the safety of of a person's children but how to impart that awareness to the child without you know ruining their childhood with you know, big bad wolf stories. As far as documentaries, uh, Heartbreak Ridge. Most recent book you read? I just finished The Path of Danger by David Drake. And right, and then now I'm currently working my way through Super Gods. Not blanking on the author's name, but uh, it Super Gods was written. I'm gonna have to look it up. I have to look it up. It's a great book. It's about uh, it's about the parallels of our current comic superheroes, kind of the origin of of comics, how they evolved, and how they represent our cultures in a lot of the same ways as, like, say the their the ancient gods, the ancient Greek. What's uh? What's kind of next for you guys? Uh, already looking at another location, and now that's the case. I'm going to bring this guy with me. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Uh, someday I'll grow up, and then I'll maybe find a career, and uh, do that. Uh, I'm. I would love to be a musician. I love. I play bass. Uh, I love the blues. But uh, for right now, what I'm doing is I'm running this kitchen uh, for my brother, and we're gonna open up some more places and make it a big success. And then as soon as it's a nice big success, then I'll, uh, I'll go to the next challenge, you know, like Kane walking the desert, putting wrongs <laughs> to right. Hey, 
Best uh, best blues band no one knows about right now. We can shine some light on. Best blues band that no one knows about right now. Ugh. I listen to so little modern blues. I mean, my what I listen to. I listen to Muddy Waters, Albert Collins, Albert King, BB King. You know, Howlin' Wolf, uh, the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. My favorite. My favorite blues artist is Muddy Waters. That's hands down. I can listen to Muddy all day. Do y'all have any morning routines that stuck with you from the military or any physical routines that you would recommend for somebody? Everybody's got their own routine. Uh, I was living out of my car. I was on my way to going crazy. Didn't have a job. Didn't have anything, anything going for me. And... You know, I literally had nothing. This guy who I, I'd really only met two or three times. I, I'd only met Dustin maybe two or three times. But, you know, he's a brother. He's a Marine. And he saw that I was hurting. Uh, and so he said, hey, man, I'll come out to College Station. I'll, I'll set you up, get you a job. And so I did. I came out here and, and the guy, you know, he, he gave me his apartment. You know, when I first got here, uh, my head was a mess. I was, I was getting my life together and needed direction. And it's it's been, you know, I've been getting to the VA, getting my counseling. I've been working full time. I've been exercising, you know, running. I go to BVMMA. I do uh, jiu-jitsu. Uh, Bubba Bush, who's actually getting ready to fight uh, in the UFC in Dublin. And uh, he's a local MMA fighter that's, that's about to uh, get his second UFC fight. Um, but but the whole reason that I'm, I'm even able to halfway function through in this radio show is, is because of guys like Dustin. You know, that's uh, he's my brother. And... Uh, I'm just, I'm really excited to see the bar be as, as successful as it's been. I think this is just the, I think we're just scratching the surface. I think uh, this bar is going to continue to grow. I, I think his businesses are going to continue to grow. But anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there, man. Oh, that's that's awesome to hear. I love you, brother. I mean, what's something you, you pulled out of that experience? Man, you know, never lose the creed. Uh, I... I started making, never compromise yourself. Uh, I started making compromises, um, character compromises a few years ago. You know, I, a lot of people, if, if I, there was a long time where I blamed a girl. I, I fell in love with a girl and she broke my heart and lied to me and all that. Sure. But at the end of the day, I compromised myself. I started taking shortcuts that, that I knew weren't, weren't right. Uh, shortcuts like, you know, not staying in the gym, uh, not being true to myself, uh, trying drugs. And, and I don't mean cannabis. I mean, you know, trying drugs and, uh, just really lost. And, and I can't say lost because I can't say I lost my integrity and my character. I, I didn't lose it. I put it on a shelf. I decided that I, w I wasn't going to live my life according to, my creed. I wasn't going to live my life according to everything I had previously based my life on. And 
it has been one of the hardest struggles of my existence to get it back. So that's that's the one thing that that I've taken from from the last year, the last two years, is that never again will I ever sacrifice my own personal sense of integrity. Is that something you wake up every day now and just kind of remind yourself, even when you, if it's still hard, if it's a hard day? Absolutely. Every day, uh, you know, I literally wear a reminder every day. But, uh, yeah, every morning I wake up, I think about it every night when I go to sleep. You know, the, it, Dustin wasn't the only guy that helped me out. There's a, a nonprofit for reconnaissance Marines and a special operations Marine called Raider Project. And the very first type of therapy I had was uh, at a place called Carrick Brain Centers in Irving. And the bill was 60 grand. No way I was going to get into that ther- therapy program without the Raider Project. They foot the bill. Um, you know, got... It, that's that's the reason why I'm standing today is because of of my brothers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Two Fit Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Two Fit USA the sports nutrition company owned and operated by the Two Fit Guys. To show our appreciation for you tuning into the podcast, we would like to give you a 10% off your entire order at TwoFitUSA.com. All of our products are sugar-free, paleo-friendly, gluten-free, non-GMO, and a whole list of other buzzwords. So hop on over to TwoFitUSA.com. Don't forget to use your promo code FIT1, that's F-I-T-1, at checkout. We highly value and appreciate your feedback, so please leave a review about the products and the podcast at our website, 2fitusa.com, under the podcast and products pages. You can also leave a review on iTunes. Now, if we happen to read your review during one of our podcasts, you'll receive a one-month free subscription of all 2Fit products. So write something noteworthy. If not, we probably won't read it anyway. So go leave a review, listen to the next episode, and until next time.